0: Good evening, it's good to be with you guys tonight. Kids, fifth grade and under, we want to invite you to go ahead and make your way downstairs for your time in Clubhouse. Thank you for spending your time in worship with us this evening. The rest of us, let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to Exodus chapter 18, where we'll be spending the majority of our time tonight as we continue in our series. Today we're going to be unpacking this chapter and looking at the implications it has for our lives as Christians as we've been journeying through what many of us are considering a new normal. Throughout this series, we've been looking at Moses and his leadership of the Israelite people as they journeyed through the wilderness on the way to the place that God had promised them. They had left what they had known for 430 or so years to head out into what was brand new territory for all of them. This chapter gives us an important picture of how God works to send help, just as Emily shared so well, how God is our helper. And so I want us to look through this chapter together and consider the implications for our own life. So we're going to start in Exodus chapter 18, verse 5. Jethro, Moses' father in law, together with Moses, his sons, and wife, came to him in the wilderness where he was camped near the mountain of God. Clearly, Moses' family had not been with him the entire time that they had been journeying through the wilderness. At some point, he had sent his wives, his wife, his wives, he had sent his wife and his sons away to go and be with his father-in-law, whose name here we learn to be Jethro. For some reason I've had the theme to Beverly Hillbilly stuck in my head all week. <laughs> Jethro. It's, such, it's one of those odd biblical names. But in this part of the account, Jethro had brought Moses' his family to visit him. I'm sure that it was an exciting occasion. And upon their arrival, verse 8 says that Moses told his father-in-law about all that God had done for him. And I'm sure that Moses has recounted all of the things that we've been talking about throughout this series. I'm sure he talked about God's call to him and the plagues in Egypt and the exodus out of Egypt and the pursuit by the Egyptians and the parting of the Red Sea and how God had provided for their physical needs as David shared with us there in the wilderness through manna from heaven and quail and water from the rock. She realized that Moses was excited about what God had done. And he wants to share with his father-in-law all of these things that he had Experienced, But I want you to also understand that this is prior to God giving Moses the law on the mountain, as will come in 19 and 20. So we've bounced around a little bit in this series, and it's kind of important for us to understand in this narrative that Moses has not yet received the law from God, and yet we see that Moses had some kind of God-given wisdom that we're going to be talking about here momentarily. And in Moses' account of all that had happened, his father-in-law responds by praising God and making an offering to God. And then we get to verse 13. The next day, Moses took his seat to serve as judge for the people, and they stood around him, the people stood around him from morning until evening. Now let's understand what's going on here. These people have already proven themselves to be a difficult people to lead. They had grumbled against Moses before they even left Egypt because Moses' very presence had disrupted the way of life that they had known even though they were in captivity. And so they had complained at Moses then and then when Moses gets them out of Egypt and they hear the the horse... Sounds behind them of the Egyptians pursuing them. They grumbled again against Moses. They get nasty with them and they ask, was it because there weren't enough graves in Egypt that you let us out here to die? There's, there's a bit of sarcasm in there. Was it because there were enough graves in Egypt that you let us out here? And then every time they got a little hungry or thirsty, they complained to Moses who was not Providing for them, or that he wasn't giving them the physical things that they needed to survive. And now, with the number of the people exceeding two million, disputes begin to arise among this obstinate group. And Moses, being the most difficult one, being the one who had been given wisdom by God, is the only one qualified to preside over these disagreements. And he finds himself doing just that, as we read. Each and every day, morning until evening, sitting in this seat, listening to the disputes of the people. And this is what his father-in-law, Jethro, comes in and he witnesses on day one of visiting Moses. And he asks the valid question in verse 14. What is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone as judge while all these people stand around you from morning till evening? Well, Moses says the people want to hear God's will. They have problems, they have disputes, they have disagreements. And so I sit here all day listening to them and making decisions for them based on what God wants. I hear Moses say, I'm the only one who can do this. There is nobody else in all of these two million people who are qualified to sit in this chair. And I can imagine how lonely Moses felt. That in two million people, he feels the only one qualified to sit in this chair from morning until evening. Any preacher will tell you that there are seasons of ministry, sometimes very long seasons, sometimes seasons that can last Years, where that preacher feels like he's the only one. Leadership in any sphere of the world can make you forget that there are others. But God has sent Jethro to remind Moses that he isn't the only one, that there are others. Verse 17 and 18, Moses' father-in-law replied, what you are doing is not good. You and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. What was it that Moses' father-in-law noticed that neither Moses nor the Hebrew people could see? It was that what was happening for them was not sustainable for Moses, and it was not sustainable for the people. It was a model that was not going to work in the long term. Eventually, Moses was going to grow weary to the point of no longer being able to sit in this seat. Not to mention, as he sat there, he is missing out on all of the other leadership things that he has to do for these people. And with a complaining people of more than two million, there had to have been a backlog of disputes that would have gone, gone unanswered that Moses never would have gotten to. Ultimately, Moses was heading for burnout and the problems of the people were going to go largely unresolved. It wasn't something that was going to work for them. And so this is what Jethro is talking about when he says that the work is too heavy for one person and that Moses was not going to be able to handle it alone. His solution, if you read ahead, his advice for Moses in verses 17 through 23 is to choose capable men to whom Moses could teach God's decrees and instructions and then set these men over smaller groups, thousands and hundreds and fifties and tens. These men would sit in judgment over the disputes of their small group and if challenges came up that were too difficult for that leader to handle then he would elevate it up and eventually if it became too challenging for anybody to handle those are the ones that Moses was most qualified to handle and those are the ones that he would oversee and in this way he would be sharing the burden of the work without compromising God's will that's the important piece that he would share the burden of the work, but God's will would not be compromised. It was a sustainable leadership model that would allow this nation to keep moving forward on their journey. And you may notice that this is the model that we as a church and many other churches use today. There's a reason that we have a group of elders and small group leaders to watch over you. And and in the coming weeks, you're going to hear a lot more about small groups and these folks that God has gifted and God has raised up to care for your soul in the way that they can, because one person wouldn't be able to do it effectively on his own. And comparatively, we only have a few hundred people that we track compared to Moses' two million. In fact, if you look around the world, you will see this model played out in schools and governments and workplaces. It goes all the way back to Exodus chapter 18. And while this model does work in the church and those other areas of secular society, there are some important truths that we as individual Christians can glean. That as we look at the account of Moses leading these people, we as Christians, whether we are in a leadership position or not, there are some things that we can learn because all of us have been called to serve God on mission, that we all have a role to play. That every one of us, if we call Jesus Lord and Savior, all of us who have chosen to take up that cross and follow Jesus, as Dave talked about last week, have been given work to do. And there are times when that work seems difficult, even overwhelming. There are times where even in small things, we feel like we are completely and utterly alone. The only one qualified to do what needs to be done. Now think for a moment about the work that you do every day, day after day in your job. Maybe 40 hours a week, if not 50 or 60, some of you working even more than that. And there are times that doing that same job day after day that you start to feel overwhelmed and burned out, on the verge of exhaustion to the point where you can't force yourself to do even the small things, even the simple things. I would say that all of us who have spent any length of time in the workforce have found ourselves at that point, have reached that point, or who have at least approached it. And that happens when we're just working to make a living. What we're talking about here, as we are called on mission by God, is kingdom work. The work that God has given us to do in order to advance his kingdom on earth. Work that has massive, eternal implications work that continues beyond us. And that alone can feel overwhelming. The reality is that Jesus never promised that this work that we were given would be easy. Paul asks the question in 2 Corinthians, who is equal to such a task? Who's equal to this, this work that God has laid out for us to do? Because there's nothing easy about carrying a cross and sharing in Christ's sufferings. Like in our day-to-day jobs, we can grow weary to the point that even the simplest things for us become insurmountable. The truth is that left on our own, we will never have the strength that is required to do the things that God has called us to do. That's kind of the point, that we'll never have the strength. When Paul asks that question, who is equal to such a task? The answer to the question is, nobody is equal to such a task. Because God has not called us to do anything in our own strength. Why? Because at the end of the day, he wants the credit for it. This is the minor theme that runs throughout the second letter to the Corinthians. When Paul writes in chapter 1, Indeed, we have felt that we had received the sentence of death, but this happened, that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead, that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God. He walks us through this further in chapter 12 when he speaks of a thorn in his flesh, a messenger of Satan sent to torment him and make his work more difficult. He writes to the church that he pleaded with God, he pleaded with him three times to remove this thorn from his flesh, and the response that he received from the Lord was, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. He asked God to take away the thorn, and God says no, because I want you to rely on my grace and to recognize that my power is made perfect, not in your strength, but in your weakness. What kind of weakness? Verse 10 tells us. In insults and hardships and persecutions, And in difficulties. Paul had been commissioned by God. He was on mission to preach the gospel to the Gentiles to the ends of the earth. Jesus himself had called him to do this. Now without opposition, without difficulties and challenges and persecutions and insults, it's possible that Paul could have made his way throughout the known world and and fairly easily proclaimed this gospel of Jesus Christ and, and had a moderate amount of success in doing so. But we learn here that he did face opposition of all kinds. To the point that he felt that his life was going to end. And many times it almost did. And he knew that in those moments it wasn't his own power that was carrying him along. Whose power was it? It was God's who says, My power is made perfect in your weakness. And it's from this that Paul can say, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. I'll not boast in my strengths. I'll not boast in my abilities. I'll not boast in my tenacity and my ability to keep going when things are difficult. I will boast in those really hard things and in those weaknesses that I see in myself so that God's power will be made perfect. So God intentionally gives you and me work that is too difficult to do on our own. He intentionally does it. And he allows us to face very difficult challenges even when we are being faithful to the mission. But we come into this work with this mindset that it will get easier if we are successful. That if I'm doing what I should be doing, then things will be easy. And that challenges come if I'm not doing what I should be doing. Paul demonstrates for us that it's the opposite that's true. That when we are doing what we are supposed to be doing, then we can expect that even more challenges are going to come. One reason is that when we are being effective for God's kingdom, that Satan is going to work on us all the more to try to keep us from being effective in God's kingdom. But the other reason is that because God wants the credit, He wants His power to be made perfect in our weakness, and He wants to show us who it is that provides for us. And God will prove Himself faithful in providing for us in those moments when the work becomes too much. Now, God provides help for us in a myriad of different ways. Sometimes we see our physical resources provided for, and sometimes we see that happen in in ways that we never expected it to happen. I'm not talking about money that drops in our laps, although that, that can happen. I'm talking about those little moments where we just need something and somehow... Somebody answers that prayer. Sometimes God provides simply by giving us a new perspective on the situation. Our situation may not change. We may not receive help in the way that we want to receive help and yet our perspective changes. But this often comes by staying close to God's word so that you can be reminded of the enormity of what God is doing. I find that One of the primary ways that God helps us is by sending others to share the load as it is in Moses's case. I want you to notice as you look through Exodus 18 that Moses in this situation didn't once ask for help either from God or from the people. We don't see him approach God and say how am I to handle the thousands of disputes among these two million complaining people? Neither do we see the Israelites themselves offering to help Moses or providing solutions to what was going on. Both he and the people were so caught up in the day-to-day problems that it's likely none of them could see that burnout was on the horizon. And this teaches us another truth about Moses' situation. That God will sometimes send unsolicited help from unlikely places. Unsolicited help that we don't ask for. Moses didn't ask his father-in-law for his input. I don't see that as the reason that Jethro came to visit him with the family. And yet Jethro has something to say. It's not lost on me that father-in-laws are generally known for giving unsolicited advice. That's, that's kind of one of the things that they're known for. And here we have a historical account of that happening thousands of years ago. So, Moses didn't ask ask for it, and yet Jethro has something to say about the situation. And I want you to also notice that the source of help was kind of strange. It was strange if you think back to when Moses met Jethro, all the way back at the beginning of Exodus, that Moses, his father in law, was not a man of God, he was a pagan priest. Remember that Moses met him when he fled Egypt and ended up in Midian where he met his daughters and he learned that he was a priest of that area, not a priest of God. It's likely that before he met Moses, he had never even heard of the God of the Hebrews, although it's possible that he had, but he certainly didn't serve the God of the Hebrews. But by hearing the story of Moses and how the people had been rescued from Egypt, Jethro recognized this one true God of Moses and how he was more powerful than any of those other little G gods. And as we consider that God sends help from unlikely places, our challenge, of course, and I I think Moses' challenge, is discerning whether advice given by others, especially unsolicited advice from those who are removed from the situation, is from God or if it's from the world. See, there is an innate flaw In human beings, to perk up our ears when we hear something that we want to hear, and to close our ears when it's something that we don't want to hear. Paul tells Timothy, For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they'll gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. And I don't think any of us would argue that we are in these times. Or people will not put up with sound doctrine. They will not put up with truth. They will surround themselves with as many people that agree with them as they possibly can and then deceive themselves into believing that they are right. Because everybody around them tells them that they are right. And it's in these times that discernment is all the more crucial. It's all the more critical for us to seek out whether this is from God or whether it isn't. See, I have people in my life, even Christians, who have a hard time seeing things from God's perspective. Admittedly, there are many times where I have a hard time seeing things from God's perspective. Those same people know what I want to hear, and that's what they'll tell me every time without fail. And those are the people that I don't typically go to for advice. And then there are others, even those who are decidedly not Christian whom God can and has used to speak into my life. And I, and I caution against receiving advice from, from people who do not know God, but in, in this situation, Moses is speaking to somebody who does not really know his God yet. The point is that we have to be discerning. Recognize that Moses had lived with Jethro for 40 years. He knew that man very very well. Our discernment comes in knowing the people around us well enough to know their intentions, and then this is important, and then in knowing God's word well enough to know if what they are saying lines up with it. Those two things are very, very important. Both pieces are critical because I can receive advice from someone I know well that might sound good to the world, and I'm talking advice from Christians and advice from non Christians. I can receive that advice that to the world sounds like sound advice, but it doesn't line up with God's will according to what He has told me in His Word. And God will never contradict Himself. That is, he will not send someone to tell you something that the Bible explicitly tells you not to do. So don't deceive yourself into believing that this advice is from God when I can open up the pages of my Bible and I can clearly see that it's not. It takes discernment. And discernment means knowing what God's word says about my situation. Seeking God out first. And then listening This is tricky, and sometimes we get it wrong. Maybe more often than not, we get it wrong. But we should be seeking God's guidance in who we should be listening to. In Moses' case, he could discern that what his father-in-law tells him to do is good and right, and so he knew that he needed to listen. And we, too, should be humble enough to listen to those whom God sends and to heed their advice. And I think that this can be just as difficult as discerning whether what's being told to me is from God or not. Because I still have this tendency when someone tries to give me unsolicited counsel, especially someone whom I don't perceive as mature enough in the faith as me. And notice I use that word perceive. That that's on me making a judgment about how far along this person is in my faith and then determining if I'm going to listen to them based on that. And so I initially think, who does this person think they are? I'm doing just fine on my own. I don't need help. I don't need this advice. And there's no reason to change what I'm doing. And of course, all those statements boil down to one thing. They boil down to pride. The belief that I can handle this on my own, that I have the strength to keep up the pace and that I'm the one who is ultimately in control of my success. What I'm really saying is, God, I don't need your help to do what you want me to do. You've called me to do it, now get out of my way and let me do it. And of course, God's word tells me that pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. It takes humility to listen and to let others come alongside you and to bear some of the load. To do so is to admit that you really can't handle it on your own, that you are weak to the world. Those are not good things to admit but they are exactly what we who are following Christ should be willing to admit. When you read the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5 and you see the description of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, to be poor and mourning and humble and meek, I don't see strength in those. I see somebody who's willing to admit that they are weak. That they are humble. And this is especially necessary when someone with a new vantage point steps in and says, What you're doing is not good. You're heading for exhaustion. And then who will be helping? When you burn out, who are you going to be helping? Who is going to get to hear this encouragement? Who are you going to get to sit with and, and share the gospel? Who are you going to get to counsel? Ultimately, the thing that Moses had to do and the thing that we all must do is to realize that the mission is bigger than me and that it needs to continue after me. Through Moses, God was continuing the promise that he had made to Abraham all the way back at the beginning of Genesis, this promise to build a nation and that through this nation, he was going to continue to move the path forward to ultimate salvation for both Jews and Gentiles. But Moses was only human, with limited capabilities and an internal clock that was winding down. He was not going to last forever. Eventually, God's mission, as you'll see as you read the whole of the Bible, would continue on without Moses. And so part of his responsibility was to develop the next leaders, those who would keep carrying God's plan forward. That really began there with Jethro instructing him to raise up capable men, teaching them God's instruction and letting them bear some of the load of the people. And like Moses, you and I are human beings with limited capabilities. And we are not going to last forever. We live like we are, but we are not going to last forever. It is a privilege to be chosen by God to participate in his Mission of blessing all the nations by seeing the gospel spread. But it is just that. It is his mission. We are active participants, but we are temporary participants in the work that goes on here on earth. At some point, without consulting you, God is going to tell you that your work is finished. He's not going to look at you and say, do you think you've done enough? Can you, can, can you be done now? Without consulting you, God will determine that your work is finished, but his mission will continue to move forward until Jesus returns for his people. And obviously, this plays out within the church in terms of us continuing to develop godly leaders who can take the reins when we're gone. This church continues to exist and continues to thrive because of the leaders that were here before us, raising up leaders who would come and take over. But more universal than that is the reality that every one of us should live as if the gospel needs to continue past our generation as it has been doing for the last 2,000 years. It's called evangelism and it's called disciple making. Many of us struggle because we think of evangelism on a Billy Graham scale, that if I can't convert hundreds of thousands of people over my lifetime, then I've got no business trying to share the gospel with people. But it doesn't have to be that big. It can start right in our own homes. Next weekend during our Saturday evening service, I have the joy of baptizing my son into the Lord. And for me and Amanda, it will be the greatest joy of our lives from the moment that we called Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior and from the moment he was born. That is what we've been driving for. Everything has has led to that. It will be the most important day of our lives as we continue to raise the next generation of gospel-bearing Christians, beginning right in our home. I want him to continue carrying this message to develop the next generation that will come after him. But what happens if he sees me burn out before I get to the finish line? Will it make it easier for him to continue? He may, but I think it will be much harder than if he sees me display Christ-like humility in accepting the help that God sends to us through others. And so our call as followers of Jesus Christ is to recognize that the work is too great to do on our own and that sometimes God sends Jethro's into our lives to remind us of that so that we continue to be effective in seeing God's kingdom advanced in our own lives and in the generations that follow. There's a really neat thing that God showed me here at the beginning of chapter 18 that I want to close out with. You know, in the Bible, names really meant something. Today, names don't really mean anything. We, we, We look at a book and we pick out a name because of the way it sounds. If it were up to me, I'd be baptizing Riker next weekend. But Amanda was having none of that because it sounded too much like a prison. I'll give her that, it did. Names in the Bible meant something. And oftentimes, the name of a child was chosen based on the circumstances into which that child was born or the way his parent felt at the time. Can you imagine what our kids would be named if we named them based on what we feel at the moment of their birth? I think it would get kind of ugly. Moses himself is named by Pharaoh's daughter because he was taken from the Nile River. The footnote in Exodus 2.10 says that Moses sounds like the Hebrew word for draw out. He was drawn out of the river. Moses keeps up this tradition by naming his children in the same way. He has his first child after... This escape from Egypt and going to Midian and meeting Jethro and meeting his daughters and marrying one of them, and he names the first boy Gershom. And it sounds like the Hebrew word for a foreigner. Moses wasn't in a good place when Gershom was born. He felt like a foreigner and a stranger because he had essentially been exiled from the only land that he had ever known. You find out later that Moses actually has another son. In fact, we find it out here in Exodus chapter 18 when we learn the name of this other boy. A name given right here at the beginning in verse 4. And the other was named Eliezer. For he said, my God, my father's God was my helper. He saved me from the sword of Pharaoh. And the footnote in my Bible says that Eliezer means my God is Helper. It's a reminder that God is faithful. That he may, in fact, give us more than we can't, more than we can handle on our own. But it's only so that he can demonstrate his faithfulness time and time again, and that his power might be made perfect in our weakness, so that God would be glorified. God is my helper. Let's pray. Father, you have many names. Every one of them means something. Tonight we reflect on this name. My God is my helper. That you are the one who steps in when it feels like the work is too overwhelming. When it feels like we can't take another step, you're the one who steps in in so many different ways and gives us the strength that we need to take that next step and then the next one and then the next. And so may we, as we reflect on this name of yours, as we reflect on this story in the middle of our Bibles, be reminded of that strength that you give, that you don't call us to be strong, just the opposite. You call us to be weak. That your power may be made perfect within us. So Father, for those that are in this room right now who are struggling with that next step, whatever it might be, whether it's their next step in faith or maybe just their next step in life, just to get to the next thing. But they know you and they know you're walking beside them. Remind them of your faithfulness time and time again you come through as you always have and as you always will for those who don't know you who haven't even taken the first step in faith may this truth about you draw them into this gospel that they might might know your son Jesus Christ and be given eternal life and begin this journey a difficult journey, but the only one that really matters. We love you, Father. We give you the glory for all of these things. Amen. If you want to talk to somebody about taking your first step or your next step, if you want to hear about what God has done, we would love to share that with you. We'll be up here as we sing this song. Let's stand up and let's worship.